at this time, I recognized that I had brought Tony into the picture when my mother, then 48, had been given one year to live. As I reconstructed that year, multiple lies emerged, beginning with my mother's harrowing experience with a medical system that did not provide her with facts. After a long period of misdiagnosed vaginal bleeding, my mother hemorrhaged and was hospitalized for an emergency DNC. This procedure led to the unexpected diagnosis of an invasive cancer. Her physician told my father, but swore him to secrecy. After the initial procedure, my mother was packing her bags to return home when she was told that an additional stay in the hospital was necessary for a second surgery to stretch her uterus. With this improbable, mystifying explanation, her doctor performed a complete hysterectomy without her knowledge or permission. She awoke from surgery confused and disoriented and suffering from inexplicably intense pain. My mother did not confront her doctor until immediately before her discharge from the hospital when he referred her for radiation treatment. She demanded then to know her diagnosis. He did not answer but instead took her hand and told her to enjoy life and to try to have enjoyable sex in the year to come. He didn't mention cancer and she didn't push it. In the year that followed, the word cancer was never spoken in my family. My mother's health was not even discussed. Inexplicably, she did not die as predicted, so we've had the opportunity to talk as adults about that traumatic year. Our conversations have allowed me to appreciate how helplessly out of control I must have felt when I constructed the story about Tony. My mother, the emotional center of the family, seemed to be dying. Susan, my only sibling, had started college at Barnard and would soon be looking for an apartment in the city. She was getting launched, leaving me for her own grown-up life. My mother was secretly making plans for her brother and sister-in-law to take me in after her death because she didn't think that my father could care for me by himself. I was on the edge of losing everyone into this precarious world, threatening to pull apart at the seams. I brought Tony. During the year after my mother's diagnosis, my most important relationships had a lie at their center. In my family, the lie was perpetuated through silence. There was a survival issue in my family that no one was talking about. Only once did I give voice to reality, to truth, in an incident that I myself don't remember. My mother tells me that sometime after she had finished her radiation treatment and had recovered her energy and spirits, she came down with a bad cold and took to bed. This was a singularly rare occurrence for her. I stormed into the bedroom and screamed at her for lying down. Get up, I commanded, with the full force of adolescent rage. 
You better not die, do you hear me, or I'll never forgive you. My mother recalls this outburst over as suddenly as it began, as our family's only direct expression of feeling, our only articulation of danger. Apart from this isolated outburst, I blanketed myself in denial. I screened out my mother's illness and my questions about how I'd be cared for if she died. With Marla, my best friend, the lie was told in words, not in silence. I constructed, elaborated, and kept alive a narrative, immersing myself so fully in the drama of Tony that I didn't experience myself as standing outside it. Only much later did I piece together enough context to make sense of my behavior, to think more objectively of its meaning. If my behavior with Marla was viewed out of context, an observer might say, she lied because she's out for herself. Or a psychological interpretation might be based on some particular notion of human behavior. Because she's insecure, she needs to manipulate and control. That's why she lies. In the absence of context, we tend to view particular behaviors as traits or as personality characteristics that exist within us rather than as part of a dance happening between and among us. Context allows us to put lying or any behavior into perspective. By broadening our view, we're challenged to take a more complex reality into account, to ask questions about where lies begin. Did the lie begin, in my case, with the frightened adolescent girl who desperately wanted to avoid any further threat of loss by holding on to her best friend Marla by whatever magic possible? Did it begin with my parents, unable to address, even with each other, a terrifying illness which at that time was handed down as a death sentence? Or did the lie begin with their parents, Russian Jewish immigrants, who could not begin to speak about the massive losses and separations they had endured? Did the lie begin under the hand of patriarchy, with the male-dominated medical system, withholding facts from my mother, protecting her from essential knowledge, quote, for her own sake? I was in my 30s before I connected Tony to my mother's diagnosis of cancer. This connection cast a new perspective on my behavior 20 years earlier, as did the facts about my mother's hospital experience then and the culturally enforced silence surrounding any diagnosis of cancer at that time. Deception is larger than the particular individual responsible for it, larger even than a family. We can never know for sure where a lie begins or the many factors that sustain it. But we can move toward an increasingly accurate understanding of ourselves as we widen our view of a lie, secret, or silence, or any deceptive behavior for that matter.
Let's talk about deception and truth-telling. Whether our motives are unconscious or intentional, pristine or nefarious, deception is a part of everyday existence. It wears countless faces. It takes on an endless array of forms and functions. Our language itself speaks to the multiplicity of ways that we depart from truth-telling and engage in deceit. We say she fibbed, fabricated, exaggerated, minimized, withheld. We say she told a white lie, a partial truth, a falsehood, a tall tale. We say she embroidered her story. We say she keeps secrets, and also she can't keep a secret. We say she is false, treacherous, manipulative, untrustworthy, scheming, conniving, corrupt. We say she is a hypocrite, a cheat. We say she's phony, artificial, affected. We say she can't face reality. We say how brave she was to reveal nothing, how clever to throw them off track. We say she lied out of necessity, she lied for the greater good. We say she lied with honor. We have more words to describe the nuances of how we deceive each other than to describe how we love. Deception is not a woman's problem or even a uniquely human phenomenon for that matter. From viruses to large mammals, deception is 